Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we have my good buddy Don Costa with Flip Talk, and he flew in from Fresno, California to share how he started flipping in 2003, and last year added wholesaling to add an additional $1.8 million in revenue. If this is your first time tuning in, I am Steve Trang, broker and owner of Stunning Homes Realty, founder of the Offer Fast Homes app, the only MLS for off-market wholesale properties. And I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. So if you wanted to join me on that, let's connect on Instagram at steve.trang. If you're excited for today's show, please give me a wave, give me a thumbs up. And as a friendly reminder, I don't charge a dime for this show. I don't make any money doing this. So here's all I ask. This is what it costs for you guys all to listen to this show. I've been advised by a consultant that I need to get to 500 five-star reviews in iTunes to hit some of my crazy goals. So please do me a favor, go into iTunes, subscribe, and give me a five-star review. If you can write what you like about the show, that'd be even better. And this is a live show, so please post your questions for Don to answer. You ready? I am. I'm game. All right. Perfect. So first question, simple, is what got you into real estate? Yeah, that's a great question, you know. And, um, you know, I think like a lot of us in this business now today, we're, I was an entrepreneur. That's what I wanted to do. It wasn't necessarily real estate. Real estate just happened to be the path that made the most sense once I found it. So real estate is my widget, right, mm -hmm. as an yeah. entrepreneur. So that, that's really that's really the, the, the reason why I'm in it. Um, what got me into it was uh, I, I, I just saw the opportunity for wealth. I saw the opportunity for, for being able to do something with my life that, um, that I didn't feel like I could find anywhere else. So yeah. gotcha. Uh, so when did you identify real estate was the way to go? About 2000, 2000 2001, I, I started really looking at real estate, um, taking it seriously to a large degree. I didn't really get into it till 2003, but I started circling it around 2001. I think mindset, like a lot of us, um, when we get started in this business, held me back for a few years. I thought that I had to have money. I thought that I had to have connections. I thought I had to have a lot of things in place to get going. And so I circled, I went to auctions. I went and, um, you know, I went and knocked on doors and talked to homeowners, but never really pushed the the domino over per se mm -hmm. until about 2003, so. Now, there was somewhere, I think you were, you were a bouncer. Like what was your journey to your first real estate transaction? Well, I spent my 20s in, in nightclubs and restaurants. So I was a bouncer. I was a bartender. I was a door guy. Um, you know, it's I, just funny to me to picture you as like the mean <laughs> bouncer that's, that's throwing people out. Well, I think that's that the perception is the mean bouncer, right? Like, you know, my talent was talking people off a ledge, you know, uh, talking people down. And that that's a talent that served me well in real estate, too, mm -hmm. solving problems, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not a, a big guy, per se, as far as height and everything else. So my talent was really... The fact that I'm soft-spoken, I'm not intrusive, um, you know, as, as an individual, and so I'm able to talk people off a ledge. So, but what got me really going in it, it, the first, I guess, domino that fell over for me was I got married in 2003. I was um, I was between jobs. I had 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 quit my job, um, started a business. That business didn't work out. And um, my wife basically was like, you know, you need to get a job. And I was like, I want to go back to school. And she's like, no, you need to get a job. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to go work for somebody else in the capacity that I've been working for them. And uh, you don't want want me to go back to school. I don't have any kids right now. So I'm just going to pull the trigger and try to get into this real estate investing thing. And I felt like that was my last opportunity because once I had kids, I wasn't going to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. So I started interviewing mortgage companies. I wanted to learn about the um, financing side of the business. And I was actually honest with the gentleman um, I was interviewing with. He asked me why I was there. And I said, I'm here to learn how the financing works so that I want to start flipping houses. 
he literally sits he sits back in his chair. He thinks about it for a minute. He leans forward. He looks at me. He goes, you go find some houses and I'll put up the money. Mm. And so looking back on it now, that was, that was more of a mindset shift for me. I went out and started knocking on doors because I thought I had one of the problems solved. I thought I had the money behind me. And realizing now that I didn't need that guy to tell me that to be successful in this business, right? But at the time- You didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I thought that I needed that. And that that became the power behind me, the wind in my sails. And I started knocking on doors and realizing I was good at making deals happen. And so that's really what got me going. Okay, so you were at that time flipping or? Started flipping, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so tell me about your first flip. So first, I first flip. Well, there was there was a handful of them basically where I knocked on the door. I was acquisitions. He would handle the rehabs, and um, we'd split the profits. Um, that guy that was backing you. That guy was backing me. Well, there's a longer story of that because what happened was that was the way it was supposed to happen, but he never sold the properties. He put a da- his daughter in one. He'd do something else with another one. Oh. Another one. So I never got paid, but. I was good at finding deals. Yeah. And so what my first flip, what happened, I had separated from that guy, um, was knocking on a door for a homeowner in pre-foreclosure working on subject two, which is something that it was what I used for a number of years. And I had a competitor there and she had gotten the property in contract. I was talking them out of the contract. And uh, I went over to her and I was like, look, you have money. And I'm better at you at this. So why don't you let me lock the deals up and you put up the money and we'll mm-hmm. split the profit? Yeah. And so she ended up funding me my first flip. So gotcha. went in and, and did, her, did the rehab on, that I ran and mm-hmm. I handled and I made a profit on. And for me, that was game on. And that was 2003? That was, yeah, 2003. Mm-hmm. And how much did you make on your first deal? $25,000. Okay, that's pretty good for a first yeah. deal. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, well, I've told people that are first getting the business, like, just don't even expect money to make money on your first flip. Right. You know, so right. that's a huge win. I had an advantage though, because I started in 2003, four and five. Mm-hmm. And in that market, you can make all the mistakes in the world and right. still make a profit. Time was on your side. Time was on my side. Gotcha. Yeah. So then what were some of your early struggles? Uh, my early struggles, I think, um, early on was getting out of my way and people and, and the same thing most people struggle with. I was, I was young. Um, I was... I was immature in, in a lot of senses and in, in, when it came to managing people and managing a business, I thought I had to control everything. Um, that was huge. Um, we were really good at identifying deals, really good at making money, really good at, uh, at, at, at it. Well, I, let me take that back. I thought I was really good at it. Like I said, in, I was in a market where if it took you an extra month or two to rehab the house, you mm-hmm. made more money. <laughs> so I would say my er- early struggles was identifying flaws in my business because they, they weren't apparent. They were masked by the market. Mm-hmm. And so like project management, people management, that was that was really the early struggle early on. They all had, your mistakes are covered up, so you don't really have to worry about them. All your mistakes are covered up, yeah. So they didn't feel like mistakes or struggles at the time. I felt mm-hmm. like I was a winner and everything I touched turned to gold. But the reality was I, I wasn't running a solid business. And that was really, you know, the, the issue that I had early on. Okay. And then you were saying that there is this rise. So from 2003 to about 2008, 2008, you had this rise and you're doing really well mm-hmm. and you're feeling like an all-star. Oh, feeling like gotta, a stud. You yeah. got to figure it out. Yeah, I was a rock star. And then something happened. The market turned. And yeah. what happened when the market turned? Well, uh, you know, I had, um, I had started a real estate company, a mortgage company, a property management company. I had three offices, 40 some odd agents. Um, I wasn't paying attention to my core business, which I, the one thing I was good at, which was real estate investing, flipping. Um, I was a bottleneck in my organization. Every decision had to come through me. I had opened a restaurant and nightclub with some partners. I was working on a sunglass line. 
Sunglass so, line. Sunglass line. Money was going out in every direction. So when the market turned, nobody thought it was going to be as bad as it was. No. Nobody thought it was going to go down as quickly as it did. And I thought everything I touched turned to gold. So I wasn't going to be affected because mm-hmm. I wasn't. I was a tool. I was an idiot. And um, <laughs> you're confident, like I a lot of us entrepreneurs are. Confident. And so I just didn't react. And my business was like a bolt with holes in it. It was just, you know, it was sinking. And and it was sinking so fast you can't bail the water out fast mm. enough, right? I, the, the money stopped coming in and the money was going out and suddenly I was insolvent. And um, it seemed like almost overnight. And and I just p- kind of started to lose everything. It started to fall apart on me. And I tried to hold different things together. And, and uh, you know, it was a really humbling experience, extremely humbling experience. And it's something that there's some nervousness right now. So a little bit of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like no one's screaming that the crash is around the corner. And I don't personally believe that we're going to have a crash. I don't think so. But there are a lot of people right now that are flipping. Mm-hmm. What lessons can they learn from your experience in 2008 That's if they're a flipper? Don't speculate. You know, a lot of people when the market gets hot will bet that, you know, by the time I sell, it'll be worth $10,000 more. I think that's mm-hmm. a mistake. Yeah. Um, you know, run your numbers and what the numbers are right now. And if they make sense, do the deal. Don't mm-hmm. don't bet the market. Uh, make sure that time is on your side. So you get in, get out, get paid. Basically, you get in, rehab the, the project, get it back on the market. Don't don't get to a point where you're not paying attention to your business and projects should, should take 30 days, take five months. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Because yeah. time's, time's what catches you. You know, if you're running an efficient business and you're in and out of projects, say an average of 90 to 100 days when you're rehabbing, um, you're going to see the market shifts and changes. You're going to be able to react to it. If it's taking you six months to get out of a project or a year to get out of a project and the market starts to change, you know, and you got like 10 or 20 deep, you're not going to be able to react in a manner that's going to make sense and save your butt if you need to save your butt. So I would just say that, you know, make sure you got good people in place, good systems and processes in place. Make sure you're managing your, the time of your projects profitly, properly and efficiently. And, um, and don't bet the market. That's, that's my advice. I don't think it's going to crash. Um, you and I had this conversation in, in Houston. I, I feel like there's pent up demand and we might go on a little run. That's my bet. I feel the same way. But um, but again, I don't have a crystal ball. So it's just a right. guess. And I'm not going to bet on that. I'm just going to I'm just looking at it a little more opti- optimistically right now than most, I think. So then is there um, like a certain amount of properties like, man, I don't want to have more than X amount of flips going on at a time. Because like, you know, there are people that have got 20 flips going on, 30 flips right. going on. Like, is there a number like, man, that is just way too risky? You know, I think that it's for every organization, it's wherever you start to see inefficiencies in your business. We got mm-hmm. up to about 65 projects in inventory at the beginning of the year. And um, 65 projects in inventory in some stage of something going on. And um, the wheels started to come off the bus in our organization. We mm-hmm. started seeing cracks. Um, I have this year three losses um, that are going to total about hundred grand on three different properties uh, because of you know, just some minor inefficiencies that happened in our processes. They don't and sound minor. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you think about the volume we did, it's not, it, it's, and, and the fact that I, it's been the seven year run and I haven't had a single loss. Yeah. Um, it's not that bad, but, um, so we've had to pull back and make adjustments. And I think that if somebody's smart about that, they're pulling back, they're making adjustments, they're watching their business, they're not just putting blinders on and thinking everything is going to be okay, mm-hmm. then I think they're going to be fine. Um, you know, for us, it's just it, we, we, we had to hit a point where we saw flaws. We're pulling way back. We're working through all our systems and processes, going through all of our pricing, going through all of our everything, and then we're, we're kind of rebooting everything and going again. So. Yeah. So we're in a mastermind together, and right. one thing you mentioned in the mastermind, if I remember correctly, is that every year 
you like to tear everything apart mm-hmm. and rebuild it from scratch. Pretty much. So talk about that for someone that's in the business. What does that mean? Well, I, you know, for, I, I think it's part of my entrepreneurial ADD that I, I get complacent, right? But at the same time, I believe that complacency in your business is, can be a death nail. Mm-hmm. And so every year I, I, we all tear it almost completely down to a large degree and rebuild it. Like in 2018, um, we were having our acquisitions managers answer the phones, book their own appointments and do that kind of stuff. Um, we had, we brought in lead managers and trained and did a whole new systems and process for lead intake, lead flow, follow up, all of it. And, um, that was a significant change in our business and how it operated and how smooth things went. So um, 2019, we decided we're going to go 100% close over the phone. Mm-hmm. And so we started changing all of our systems and processes. Again, kind of tore everything down, re, you know, rebuilt it. I kind of teed everything up. I had a COO start in July oh. and teed everything up for her to come in and start kind of going through the business. And even still this year, normally it takes me a quarter to kind of reboot. Mm-hmm. Um, this year has been almost a year of a reboot because we're going through multiple changing how we're closing, changing how we're running things, bringing somebody in to run the organization. I need to let her have a certain degree of implementing systems and processes that work best for her and building some of her own team. And so, but the change has been really, really good. I think one of the reasons I continue to do it right now is because I, I know that my business can be better mm-hmm. operationally. Like I know I can get it to a point where it's going to be able to run 100% without me efficiently. And so all these changes are designed to do that. And instead of doing some major change all at once, we each year we kind of go, okay, this is the next step. This is the next step. And I think we're finally at that point where I'm going to feel good about letting go. We'll see. Well, remember once we feel good, it's when we get humbled. Yeah. It's when we get humbled. Uh, so is it still then an iterative change? Like, are you making like subtle adjustments or are you doing like massive changes? Through this year, it's more subtle adjustments. Ah, some of them are massive, but it's more subtle adjustments. Yeah. You know, I don't think in, at the beginning of 2020 we'll make it look like we'll tear it down again like we did the last two years. Mm-hmm. But we're gearing like right now we're preparing to go into 2020 and the goals we have set for 2020 and everything we're doing right now is building the efficiencies and systems and processes and training the sales team and and all of that to be ready for to meet meet the goal we have, which is you know pretty aggressive. Gotcha. So. So one thing that uh, was impressive too, when we were speaking offline in Houston, was that you, even though you had this horrible, um, I wouldn't say failure, but lots of bad things happening at the same exact time in 2008. Yeah, it was failure. Um, you were able to walk away from it without filing bankruptcy. Right. Which almost everyone mm-hmm. filed BK at that time. So how did you do that? Um, a lot of praying. Uh, you know, I, I had a million dollar judgment against me from the restaurant closing down at the time. The landlord went after me for closing down the restaurant. I didn't have the money to pay an attorney. So he got a, a, an obscene, obscene just, judgment against me. Uh, judgment? Obscene judgment. Oh, obscene. Okay. <laughs> obscene. So, uh, it was just under a million. It was like 900 and, and change. Um, and that was really the one that was going to push me into bankruptcy. You know, everything else was was smaller. I knew that I could at some point in time settle it or, or Wait, pay it and off. And these are, were like friends and family, private lenders, hard money lenders. Who were these Pri- people that you were settling with? Um, not settling, but negotiating with. Negotiating with mostly mostly people debtors. Uh, you know, like the landlord or different debtors were the ones that I was negotiating with a lot. I didn't really have friends and family money. I had private lender money. That was. Um, you know, that was, that was a tough one to work through. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's definitely, that was an eye opener. You know, I borrowed a lot of unsecured money. Mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore. 
I, everything I do is tied to a property and it gets paid off when the project sells because it gives you a false sense of security, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but um, the uh, the landlord was the one that was a tough one. And I, I actually, he went after me in court several times, tried to pierce my corporations that I had set up to start doing real estate under. And um, I just kept hitting them with 25 grand, 25 grand, 25 grand, you know, I'll settle with you for 25 grand. And after about a two years, he finally agreed to settle. I don't think he figured I would complete the agreement. Mm-hmm. We agreed to two thousand dollars a month for I think it was like thirteen months, and um, or twelve and a half months or whatever it was. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we agreed to two thousand dollars a month, and I think he probably thought I was going to f- pay him something and then and then default, and he'd be able to go after me for the rest. But I actually honored that agreement and yeah. settled a million dollar judgment for twenty five grand. Not bad. So, and that's that's really what kept me out of bankruptcy. Everybody else that I had to deal with, for the most part, you know, it has worked with me. So it, it hasn't been. It hasn't been detrimental in that sense. So gotcha. Okay. So then, 2008, bad things happened. Mm-hmm. Through 2011, it was it was still rough. When did you see sunlight or you know see light again? 2000. So 2008, bad things happen. Um, you go into survival mode. You start looking at the pebbles in front of you instead of the big boulders that are going to solve your problems, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I went into fear and depression and everything else. I tried to find a job, couldn't get a job. And this went on. We had the restaurant. I was holding on to the restaurant and nightclub um, and fighting with the city, trying to get conditional use permit stuff and stupid things. Like they want us to close at midnight and then they wouldn't let us have dancing. And we fought with them for four years. Um, at the end of 2000, I think it was 2011, we decided to close it down. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I basically um, sunk into a chair in depression and didn't know what I was going to do, didn't have money, um, had situations like taking my family to Taco Bell and having my credit card decline, having to collect my family and take them out of Taco Bell, you know, with my kid basically asking me why the mean guy wouldn't give us their, our food type of thing and, and just stuff that was like soul crushing moments. And um, one day sitting on my couch watching news. I posted an ad on Craigslist saying, you know, experienced flipper looking for a private lender uh, must be close enough to have a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And I had six people respond. Um, one of them I met with probably a half a dozen times. And um, he would, we just talked for hours, but he never committed to backing me on a deal. And it was the last conversation. I was sitting there with him at Starbucks drinking a Trenta iced black tea. And it was about three hours into the conversation. I had to pee so bad, but I didn't want to leave the conversation. And um, I got a text from my wife that said that our water got shut off. And I was sitting there and I was like, if I don't close this guy in this conversation right now, I'm SOL, I'm done, right? Mm-hmm. So I, w- I made the commitment. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close him. And I did. I got him to commit to backing me on a deal. By the end of the conversation, he's like, go find a deal. I'll fund it. I went home. Thank goodness I had been rehabbing houses in the past, so I knew how to turn my water back on. Um, I turned it on and then found the money to pay the bill. But he he decided he was going to back me on a deal. I went out. I started networking, everything I could do. Uh, found a deal in June 2012. Sold it in September 2012. We made 20 grand. I got 10. It was gone before I even got it in my hand. But I was back in business. It was mm-hmm. proof of concept again. Yeah, the real estate was going to work for me again. Gotcha. And then you just kind of kept rolling from there. Yeah. And we, we I closed two deals, uh, one November, last day of November and the first day of October of 2012. And then um, and then we closed a couple more right after the first of the year. And just it started like one here, two there, three here, one there, you know, and just started perpetually building itself. Now, one thing I heard you talk about as well is not being a prisoner of the lender. Right. You want to talk about that? Not being a prisoner of the lender. Um <clears throat> tell me that. Tell me the context where I talked about it, because there's a lot of ways I can go with that conversation. <laughs> well, basically, it's where once you realize the lender needs you, 
more than okay. you need right. them. Because there's, there's, there's another way, which is you need to control the project because mm-hmm. you don't want 15 people coming in and telling you what color the cabinets need to be. That's, oh, yeah. that's one way you need to not be a prisoner <laughs> lender. But, but that's more of a prisoner of yourself. Like a lot of people, when, when it comes to private money, they'll go in and they think they need to have this detailed explanation of a project. And they need to come in and pitch this project and sell the lender on the project and how great they're going to be. And, uh, and they'll just tie themselves up in knots and be nervous. And, and I always say that you need to go in and understand that you both bring value to the table. You're on equal terms. Own your value in the conversation. They have money. You have a way for them to make money with their money. So they're not better than you and you're not better than them. Mm-hmm. And so own your value in those conversations. And that goes a long way, number one. Number two, go in there and have a conversation about goals and whether or not they align. Don't go in there to pitch a project. Because you're pitching a project, you're missing the point. The lender is not betting on the project, they're betting on you. Right. So the conversation needs to be about how do our goals align? You know, where are we as far as being able to do business together? And does it look like it's going to work? And if it does, great. Let's do one and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. If you run your meetings like that with that kind of confidence, you're going to have a lot of success getting private money. Gotcha. And then uh, for someone that's newer, uh, how can they negotiate a lower rate when they're borrowing from a lender? I mean, it's different when you got a track record, right? You got a track record, you can negotiate. You can ask for whatever you want. Yeah. But if you're newer, like, how how do you negotiate? You know, again, I first I want to say when you're brand new, one of the most creative ways to borrow is joint venturing with the lender, which is how I started. When you don't have money to stroke a payment, when you have money for a down payment, if you go in with a lender and you say, you put up the money, whatever it takes, and I'll do all the work, whatever it takes, and we split the profit, that's like the best way to get started. Mm-hmm. That's how I started. You're covered. Yeah, I think that's the way most of us who are successful started. Um, you get you can you can run your your projects from a position of power. You can you can have your head right because you know the money's there. So that's number that's my advice. Number one is don't worry worry about getting going. Worry about getting that traction. Worry about getting that experience mm-hmm. the right way by having that problem solved. I just have somebody put up the money and split the profit with them. That's how I think they should do it. If you are really worried and hook up on the interest rate, then I would say that you it still comes down to a conversation of you're the horse they're going to bet on, and you mm-hmm. need to show them that whatever happens in that project, you're going to get to the finish line. If you can make somebody comfortable with that, the interest rate is going to be a non-issue. You mm-hmm. know, it's really going to come down to how can I make their goals as a lender happen for them. You know, in that project, if somebody is completely unrealistic, say no. You know, right. and and no has a lot of power. No has a ton of power. Somebody's asking for sixteen points. You'd be amazed how many times I said no, and people backtracked and said, "Okay, well, what will it take?" Yeah, and ten, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and they say, "Okay." It's like so. There's a lot of power in saying no. So know your value. Sell them on you're the horse that's going to get it to the finish line, and then be willing to say no. And that's probably the best trick to getting the best interest rate, regardless of where you stand in this business. Gotcha. Now there's plenty of players in your area. Um, not like your area, but yeah. Not like our area, yeah. but I mean, literally, Matt G is coming next week. He is. All right, so you got you, you got Matt. I don't know how far you are from Michael Ray uh, in Modesto. How far is Modesto from Fresno? An hour and a half. Hour and a half. Okay, so that's pretty far. But how how is your operation different than your local competitors? Um, I don't know that it is completely different. You know, we... Matt, Matt has been more of a wholesaler for a long time. We've done deals together back and forth. He does do some rehabs. Um, I consider him a friend. Um, he's got a smaller operation, uh, and in a sense, um, he runs. He just runs a little leaner, mm-hmm. and uh, which really works for him. Um, I, I, I'm more so. I want people to handle most of it. So. Um, so other than that, I don't know. I mean, we're we're all the same market. We go off to the deals. I, it, 
I'm, I'm extremely competitive. I think that's one of the ways that, that yeah. my operation is different. And I don't necessarily want to say that out loud, but I am extremely competitive and I will, I will go hard after deals, um, mm-hmm. hard after marketing. I'll give my team permission to pay a little more and they probably shit on things sometimes to lock <laughs> them up. But at the same time, I think like other markets, there are a handful of people that like we're friends and we'll pick up the phone and say, look, we're both going against each other on this property. It doesn't make sense to bid each other up. So, you know, let me take this one and let you take the next one type of thing. So we do have some of that going on. Oh, really? In our market, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, and so one thing that we've talked about, talked about too, right? Like you've been, you've been doing flipping since 2003 and you've done a lot of flips, right? I mean, do you have a ballpark idea how many flips you've done? Since 2003, no. Nah, I mean, I'm a lot, probably in the thousand plus-ish. Okay. Yeah. But in 2018, you decided we're going to start wholesaling too. Mm-hmm. What was the reason for that? Because we were um, going to, I'd send out 1.2 million postcards in 2018. I was going to go on a huge, I'm going to figure out exactly what works and track all my marketing crazy blitz. And when you're when you're rehabbing, it fits in a box or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And everything else is garbage to you. Yeah. And I felt like we were going to be throwing away a lot of leads. Um, I really struggled with adding the wholesale component. I felt like it was going to cannibalize my rehab business. I felt like my, my team was going to take the easy way out on deals. Mm-hmm by doing that because they're two fundamentally they're different businesses in a lot of ways yeah and um so but i also knew that we were going to have all these leads that we needed to capitalize on um and so we decided to go ahead and 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 see if it would work out for us it was more of a let's just see what happens and Mm -hmm. it worked out really really well so okay so it did not kind of buzz it did it had an impact you know i'm not gonna lie It, it had an impact on my business um you know when you're rehabbing at a high volume you need to be buying and selling, buying and selling, buying and selling for your capital, cash flow, everything to make sense. And my dispo guy got so good at getting the number we wanted on a wholesale deal that he got he got me saying yes to a lot more properties than I should, and I created a gap. Mm-hmm. And that gap had implications, you know, near the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, where in our in our cash flow, it, you know, our organization um, went from you know 100 plus thousand dollars a week in gross profits to basically, um, you know break even to, to uh, you know, we're having to write a check on some things mm. for about a month, you know, because of that, just the ripple. And, you know, that I saw it coming. I prepared for it. You know, we shifted to, to wholesale a little bit more during that time to cover cover that capital gap. But, um, you know, a lot of businesses, if they weren't prepared, that would have really hurt. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I we, we created it. We created a hole in, in our in our flow, and that had an impact. Uh, did we mitigate it? Yeah. Did we have we have we since rectified the situation and found a little more balance? Absolutely. Yeah. So, but um, you can't touch water without making a ripple. Everything you do in your organization is going to have an impact, positive or negative. Yeah. And and it did. We had to work through it. Um, we had, you know, when we when we set the the lead managers in, we had communication issues. We had to work through it. Um, you know, we bring in a COO. There's there's other issues we have to work through. So everything you do, every change you make in your organization, you just got to know that even though it seems really really good in the moment, that there are going to be implications, positive and negative, and you got to be watching for those. And that was huge for us. So in 2017, right? How many flips did you do? 2017, I, we were like 122. Okay. Uh, and then what is your target profit for a flip? I mean, a target profit, we want to be about $30,000 a flip on average. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in 2017, we were closer to the, tw- the, the 20, low $20,000 mark. In 2018, we were $29,000 okay. per flip. Yeah. So, you, so you switch and then you go to 2018. 
So you had 129 flips, is that what you said? 139 flips. 139 flips. And in 2018, how many flips did you do? Oh, no, 2017 we did 122. 2018 we did 139. Okay. And we did 58. So you, did, you did more flips. Did more flips, and we did 58 wholesales. And you did 58 wholesales. So did it really cannibalize your business? It, well, it didn't cannibalize, but it created it created repercussions through yeah. the organization, gotcha. if that makes sense. Yeah. So when you look at just rehab revenue, like I said, it impacted the cash flow. Mm. Didn't re- didn't impact necessarily the revenue of the organization as a whole, but it impacted how we cash flowed our rehabs. Had we um, decided not at some point to wholesale and just rehab, that would have created a hole in the cash flow. Cash flow is the lifeblood of an organization. You yeah. can you can be losing money every single month if you're cash flowing. You can stay alive for a long time. You can be profitable with no cash flow and you're yeah. out of business. Right. So that's the point I want to make is. And I think that's a really hard concept for most people to right. understand is that you can make money and be and go out of business. Right. Right. Yeah. I've done it before. (laughs) So I've done it before. So I'm really, my biggest thing about my business and how I do everything is about cash flow, about, you know, having proper cash reserves, how about running your business in in, in a healthy manner and having proper cash flow through your organization. Yeah. And that's how I look at my business all the time. So that's the reason why I want to bring it up and just point out that there's going to be implications, good and bad. Yeah. So for you guys, you don't know what we're talking about. uh, A book that helped me a lot really conceptualize this was Scaling Up. Right. Right, I think it was like the Rockefeller Habits rewritten or like 2.0 or something like that. I haven't read it yet, but it sounds like a good book. <laughs> uh, yeah, so actually uh, I have my accountant who I met with today, who I've just recently converted her to be my CFO today. Um, and her first assignment is to read Simple Numbers, which was the same guy that wrote the financial section of Scaling. I was like, you need to read this, you need to understand it, you need to run my business. Right. Or manage my, my finances exactly how this guy says to do it. Because that was a book that came highly recommended by Rafael Vargas. Um, Okay, so going back to your uh, to 2018, um, so you're about 29k for flip, mm-hmm. and what about wholesale? 20. 20. So why flip? Well, okay, so that's a fantastic question because right now it's I I, I want to say that I have a personal struggle with that. We may, are making really really good money in our market wholesaling, and it seems like a no brainer, right? We had a. Uh, 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 large six-figure payday on a wholesale transaction um, that we didn't even see that we closed via text message. And I'm like, why, why are we flipping? But uh, the markets, the markets change. Yeah. Okay. I have, I have private money available. I have contractors. I have everything in place to be a good rehabber, all the systems and processes. And there's going to be a point like right now we're taking advantage of the wholesale opportunities, but there's going to be a time where you're going to have to add value to move product. You're just Mm -hmm. going to have to. And I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel there. You know, I want to keep at least most of the infrastructure I have in place alive and healthy so that when the market swings back and I have to add value, I have the ability to do that without having to go out and hire everybody again and figure it all out again. So it took a lot to build it to where it is is right now. And that's, that's part of my... That's part of my, I guess, struggle in letting that part of it go, and I, I'm not gonna let that part of it go. I think I think it would be a, a not unwise business move to do that. Yeah, you know, at this point in time. So we're again, it's balance. How do we keep everything functioning the way, you know, in a healthy manner, and how do we um, capitalize on the opportunities in the market now? And that's that's the daily struggle. Gotcha. Yeah, um, we choose not to flip at all. Right. But we flip because there are some properties we can't move, <laughs> so we made a commitment to the homeowner, so we're closing on it. And we do the bare minimum to get it to get it ready. Um, so, I guess then one thing you also mentioned was that you're going 100% virtual now. Mm-hmm. So, what were the roadblocks or the you know limiting beliefs 
that transition you from going um, in person, belly to belly, to virtual? Because you're still in just Fresno. No, we're not just oh, Fresno. You're we're, not no, we're we're um, we've been Bakersfield to the Bay Area for a number of years now. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're in multiple markets. All right. So you're flipping. Yeah, we could we couldn't do the volume we do for just Fresno. That wouldn't happen. <laughs> so, but, but we're 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 rehabbing within like a two hour s- circle. Wow. Okay? okay. Everything else is is wholesale. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So then, um, you're driving two hours at one at, at one point, closing these people and then flipping it. Mm-hmm. And now you're closing them over the phone, mm-hmm. and either wholesaling it or flipping it. Right, and then some of our markets are you know three hours away, and so we'd have boots on the ground in those markets. Mm-hmm. So um, the reason why we decided to go virtual was because I had boots on the ground in multiple markets, and the thing is with boots on the ground is you have to keep them fed. Right, mm-hmm. you have to keep them busy. You have to keep their appointments booked in order for them to be successful. You can't just be like, all right, you know, here's an appointment here and here's an appointment there. It doesn't work. They're not going to stay with you. So all my marketing was geared towards keeping everybody, you know, everybody's appointments full. And I looked at it and I said, that doesn't make any sense as an organization. I need to be able to market when it makes sense to me as a company, not just to keep somebody busy. Right. Even if they're successful in that market, it's still, you know, I shouldn't be doing a drop there for another month and I got to do a drop there just to make sure that I have appointments for the, the guy. So um, that was one of the things that, that kind of caused me to think, okay, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so I started looking at closing over the phone, which some people are, were already doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that's a mindset shift in itself because everybody thinks belly to belly is where it's at. And so we started testing that, kind of sticking our toe in the water. And I noticed that we were getting better deals. And I was like, why? You know, and it, and it's still my. It's, I don't have a proven theory, but my thought process behind it is that there's there's not that need to get the contract before you leave. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you're on the phone and let, let me call you back. Let me look at this. Let me do that. You know, there's not that rush to try to get the contract before you leave the appointment that you may overpay a little bit more or offer a little bit more. Um, and I think there's even though there's emotional connection over the phone, I don't think it's quite as much of a tie. Like there's always, you're, somebody's always selling something on an appointment, right? Mm-hmm. They're selling you, you're selling them. And sometimes we're like, well, I really want to help this person out. So I'll, I'll give them a little bit more. I don't think there's as much of that over the phone either. And so I think that part of the not needing to close in the first phone call and not having as much of a tie to the seller gives us an opportunity to buy a little deeper. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel like we're seeing. So interesting. whether or not we're getting as many deals as we would if we were belly to belly, I can't say. It, probably not. We're still doing a lot of deals, so I'm not going to complain. But um, what I what I am able to do is market in a way that makes sense to my organization now, spend the marketing dollars in a way that makes more sense to my organization. And um, we're able to sit and listen to what the team's doing and listen to the phone calls and just have a better feel for the, um, the interaction and negotiations than we did when we had boots on the ground. And it's helping our training processes and everything else. Mm. So, um, and what it does is it allows me the opportunity to basically spread across the United States like locust if I want to, right? I mean, right. It's, it yeah, wa- wholeheartedly. Yeah. Uh, so one of the other things that I remember you speak to, right, in the mastermind was that you're you're consistently testing everything, seeing this is still like even though this was you know uh, the way it was done in 2015, mm-hmm. 2016, you're still testing to see if that's still the case in 2018, mm-hmm. 2019. So talk about that methodology. Like, how are you going back and testing what's working, what's not working? We split test everything we do. Um, if we change the list, if we change the postcard, if it's the you know first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, like we're we're changing the phone number on everything we do, and we're we're split testing and we're running reports, you know, and looking at okay, 
what were our calls, what were our appointments, what were our um, contracts, what were our, you know, now we're not doing appointments, that changed a little bit, but, you know, what do we make, you know, overall on this particular SWIT test? Did we mm -hmm. make any money at all? There, there are some, some SWIT tests we did that we made zero dollars. There's some that we knocked it out of the park. Some of my split tests for direct mail, it was, you know, $1,800 a deal. You know, some of them were $5,000 a deal. So um, being able to see that at a granular level is huge as an organization because you can you can figure out how to redeploy your capital each, yeah. each year. And you want to go back and test. But, like, things I, I was able to see from 2018, going into 2018, you know, we thought we had to mail every 30 days. You know, in 2019, I see that mailing every 60 to 90 days makes more sense. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know that may change in 2020. We'll watch. So, you know, we get to see those things. You know, and see you know which lists are the higher profit margins. You get to see like which lists are low hanging fruit lists, which lists are high hanging fruit lists. So the low hanging fruit are, you get the call, you get the appointment, you get the contract. High hanging fruit is you get the call, you get to work for a little bit for the appointment, you get to work for a little bit for the contract, but it still produces. Mm -hmm. And so we get to see that. So now we can stagger those in a way that allows our lead flow in our organization to make sense. So yeah. it, I don't know if that answers the question or not, it but does make sense. So it gives then, a lot of clarity. So for me, the challenge is, right? Like I love the idea of split testing, where right? I'm a right. marketer. I love the idea of split testing. How the heck do you manage that? Like you got, who's, you're not checking the numbers. No. You're not running the numbers. Who, who's doing that? How are you guys split testing? So um, I am actually, I've been the one that through 2018 and most of this year have been the ones deploying the marketing. Like mm -hmm. I'm the one that sets all, everything up to go out because I wanted to make sure that, that the, the, I guess the control was controlled. And so, but my, I have Cass and um, Natasha in the office, my office manager and her assistant, they're the ones that compile all the reporting on, you know, basically what's coming in, what split test produce what, what properties we buy, how much we make and all that kind of stuff. So, and then I get to look at that reporting. So you just gotta tell them how to do it. Just gotta tell them how to do it. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, so, and guys, uh, Don is a wealth of knowledge. So please, if you guys have questions, ask, fire away. Uh, Jason Toledo wants to know why flipping over developing? Um, I'm a time guy. And so in my market, you know, you got, you know, a couple months, couple, you know, two months of just plan check, you know, and then they might kick it back to you and you got, you know, resubmit and you got all that. And, you know, by the time you build something, you're a good year or more in to the project. And I'm a get it out, get in and get out, mm -hmm. get paid. So that's one of the reasons why. The other thing is, is that in my main market where I had the most control, our, our dollar per square foot isn't all that great. You know, if I was in the Bay, like, and it's, you know, $1,000 a foot or $500 a foot to add square footage, mm -hmm. then I would probably be adding square footage or building. But in Fresno, when you're like a buck 40 a square foot, you know, it doesn't make sense at the end of the day to spend all that time in developing mm -hmm. a project. Not to me, at least, as, right. a, as a, you know, I, I make far more money rehabbing and flipping. Gotcha. All right, let's see what else was there. Uh, and Joey wants to know, how did you turn your water back on? <laughs> with, the, with vice grips. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to pop the lock, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> they, they, they have this little wire thing. You got to break it, and then you might probably got a $45 fine for that. And then I use vice grips to turn it on. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Uh, I used to, you know, when I used to do REO, I had to turn on an yeah. awful lot of water. Even though you ordered the water on, mm -hmm. the city hasn't made it out there. So right. I had a lot of practice with that as well. Uh, BJ, who wrote the Simple Numbers book, I honestly don't know. I just know it was the same guy that was in Scaling Up. Um, Anna and Alvarez wants to know, what database are you using for tracking? Or how do you guys track? For our marketing? Mm -hmm. we're, we're, um, all of our marketing is, is in Excel, every single, like, you know, the order, the quantity, the phone number that's tied to it, the split test. It's all on Excel, and then the reports I get are Excel. So right yeah. now, 
you know, it's, there's, I mean, Podio is supposed to do it for you. I don't, it's always imperfect, you know? Yeah. So I, uh, we always go through and just make sure our numbers are accurate and pretty much everything I get at this point is in Excel. I, w- I wish, I hope that there, we can find a better way to do it, but that's where we're at right now. Yeah. That's, that's good to know though, right? Yeah. Like, you're still using Excel. Excel yeah. is still good. Uh, Rick Boyd wants to know, do you keep any of your deals? Sometimes. Sometimes. What, uh, what conditions? I need to buy them um, basically the same that I'd buy them as a flip, and they need to have a renter in it that's paying. Mm-hmm. So, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I answered the other question. CA, are you vested in any buy-in holds? Yeah, from All right. time to um, time. So Michael Ray wants to know. There's something I know he's been uh, – he and I talked about a little bit. Uh, should he create an agency or build a team under an agency to sell his flips? He's got this thing where he thinks listing agents are lazy. I don't know where he gets this idea that realtors don't want to work. <laughs> Hmm. Um, well, I think like in any industry, there's the, the good, bad, and the ugly, right? There's, there's the ones, yeah, the ones that work hard and the ones that won't, but he probably just gets the bad apples. Yeah. We, we have a real estate, um, I set up a separate corporation in California. You can have a broker record for your corporation mm-hmm. and your corporation is licensed to sell real estate. He manages all the agents underneath. Yeah. So, I mean, Mike can do that. Uh, I love Mike, by the way. Uh, he's a cool guy. So he, he can definitely do that. Um, it's a shiny object though, to a certain degree. Like you, yeah. you need to have, like I had somebody that was in place that was like, yeah, I'll be the broker and I'll handle it. Mm-hmm. So unless he's got that in place, I'd probably just, you know, try to build a good relationship with somebody he can count on. Right. So you own a brokerage. I do. Why? Why not? Cause I own a brokerage and mostly it's less fun than it looks. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so control, um, we, we did it. We have, the only agents we bring in are agents that are seasoned and we don't have to babysit and mm-hmm. do their own thing. We give them like a 90, 95% split. Um, and then the broker in or that organization basically handles like all of our um, resales. He manages all of our, our resale listings. So um, it, it's more so just for that, just to be able to have it and have access to the MLS, have access, have control of our listings. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we have the agents in the office and they produce enough to cover our overhead. It's not, we don't use it as a profit center, but it definitely offsets costs right. and um, gives us some control. We never did it, designed it to build an agency, to build a brokerage. It was just more so to be a piece to the puzzle. And I yeah. think that's the reason why it works well for me is because it's not something I'm chasing with half my day trying to build a brokerage. Yep, makes, makes complete sense. Uh, Matt Smith wants to know, how are you defining success in a year from now? For for me right now, spend more time with my kids. Honestly, I need to learn to shut it off, um, spend more time with my family unplugged, and then I want to impact as many lives as I can. So if I can do both of those in a year, like just absolutely impact lives, change lives, like you build millionaires and um, and spend more time with my family, that's, that's success for me. It's not about... For me, it's not about money. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you right now, it, it, it's it's never been about money. When I got into this, it was about the hunt. I liked the hunt. I liked being able to get a deal. And now it's just about the impact I can make. So oh, makes sense. And I don't need to make a lot of money. I just need to make enough to buy the Cardinals. So fair enough. That's that's right. that's, that's a personal thing. All right, I'll go in halfsies. Oh. <laughs> uh, how do you stand up from other wholesalers and flippers? Um. 
I, you know, that's a fantastic question. I don't know if I've even thought about it. We just, uh, we put our head down and do our thing and don't worry about other wholesalers and flippers. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, I, I'm, I'm competitive, so I always got to have an adversary. So I'll usually pick a target, somebody ahead of me. And then once I pass them, I forget about them. Yeah. So, but as an organization, we, we just, we try to be honest, ethical, do what we say we're going to do um, and produce a good product. And, you know, I can't say that other people don't do that, you know, so um, I don't have a good answer for that. You know, trying to be the best version of you. Be the best version of us, yeah. Uh, Rick Boyd wants to know, what's your favorite data source? Um, to buy data? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we went through a lot of um, experiment with that. I mean, lead source is a great source of data. It's probably one of the best ones out there. It can be pricey. Mm-hmm. Um, lead source? Lead source. Um, list source. List source. Okay. I apologize. Yeah. Bad wording. <laughs> list source. Thank you. Correct me. Um, list source is is probably one of the best ones out there um, as far as buying data. Um, there are there are a few more out there as well. Um, we get some data from um, some list brokers that do the um, data aggregation or whatever, where they're going mm-hmm. through and figuring out like who's going to sell and whatnot. I can't say one hundred percent that I feel like that has paid off. Mm-hmm. We've definitely made our money back and then some. So, but we've made just as good money from list source and that person and the my postcard guy pulls our data for us and we make just as good money off of that too so um i think it i think good data is obviously very important but also making sure that you're deploying your marketing and tracking your marketing and following up on your marketing is as important or more important yeah well well before i ask this question is that todd or somebody else no not todd Okay, so uh, we're talking about follow-up, and I know this is something that you love to rant on. Yes. So follow-up, talk about the importance or how much, how important follow-up is in your business. Follow-up is huge, and right now it's especially huge. You know, I I was talking to um, Christina Krause at um, an event, and I was saying that follow-up was, you know, roughly 40-ish percent of my business, and, and she's like, you know, I'd expect you to say 70 or 80, and... And I walked away from that conversation, and um, she's probably more correct in the sense that, you know, everything that's not booked an appointment on the first call is follow-up. And Mm -hmm. probably, I would say, 90% of your business is that, right? Right. So um, a large portion, at least half the money we made last year was was follow-up, you know. Um, This year... It's a large portion. We got 18 contracts yesterday um, total in for this month, and that was a, almost 100% follow-up. Like all we're doing right now is just mining our database. Mm-hmm. We're going through because we're doing all this new, all these new systems and processes in in the sales side, and I don't want to deploy dollars that are just gonna be thrown away. So I'm like, right. go through the dirt. Just go through all the dead leads, all the all the cold leads, everything. Go through the dirt. We pulled 18 contracts out of our dirt. So that's, it's huge. And that it, it's just an example of people are going for the low hanging fruit all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's so much gold in your database. And, um, and, and I just, that, that's where, that's, that's where we're going to concentrate. Like we're going to concentrate really hard on that. We're still going to be doing all the outbound marketing in 2020. We're going to be doing really, really heavy outbound marketing, but I'm going to have a team set aside just to mine the dirt in our database because that there's a ton of profit in there. And if you're not doing it, you're, 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 Dumb. That's that's the best way to put it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, we incorporated uh, Scott's uh, Fu Fridays. Right. Right. Everyone comes in at noon. Mm-hmm. We order lunch, and they all have to follow up. It's important. You're pulling deals out of that, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, yep. it's it's huge. I, I I met with a guy, and I always tell this story because it it's it, it just such it had such an impact on me. But he had scribbled out this whole process on this whiteboard on follow up, and I do not to this day remember the process. That's irrelevant. Didn't matter to me. What mattered to me was how important he thought follow-up was. Mm -hmm. And I took that back to my operation that he thought it was so important. And in 2018, when we put all the lead managers stuff in place, we told him, your primary purpose here is follow-up. You know, we put all these systems in place. Acquisitions, if they don't put their notes in the system within seven days, we take the lead away and the, the LM follows up and reassigns somebody else. If they don't have it closed in 30 days, we take it away and the LM starts to do follow-up and they can close it over the phone or assign it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. We started putting all these, these systems in place and they started paying off in dividends. Yeah. You know, and then this year we're like, okay, well, we're doing these things and we need to test you guys out and test your skills out. So let's just go in and mine our database. And I'm like, 18 contracts this month from our database. And I'm like, why am I spending money on marketing? You know, so. You had to market at some point. Right. Uh, Michael Ray asks again, are you a flipper first or a wholesaler? Um, I am just somebody that wants to make good money and run a good business first. So what makes sense at the time at this point in time? Yep. Um, and then uh, STV wants to know if a seller is asking for retail or too far from where you need to be, do you cancel the lead, negotiate it down, or move on? We, for for a long time, we would send our acquisitions people out on the appointment um, when we had acquisitions people because I've learned the hard way just because they ask for retail on the phone does not mean that's what they're going to take in on the appointment. There's mm -hmm. been many times where they've asked for retail on the phone and we've gotten a great deal on the appointment. So we don't cancel. If they have a heartbeat, if they say they're open to selling and they're, they're somewhat flexible or negotiable, we would send our people out. On the phone now, it's, it's kind of the same thing, but it's more, it's, we just keep them in, in follow-up. And we find that, you know, six months, a year down the line, we get the deal. Sometimes it's something as simple as now the comp has went up and it made sense. Mm -hmm. yeah, they didn't want retail. Like one time a lady wanted 65 and our number was 60 and we couldn't come off of 60. It was as high as we can go. And then 11 months later, we bought the property at 65 because the comps went up. It made sense. Yeah. So, um, so I would say that I wouldn't kill it. I would, I would, I would, it, for, for me, if you're going out on appointments, I would go out on appointments and use every John Martinez or every ninja trick that you can possibly, every every uh, Steve trick that you can use on the sale appointment mm -hmm. and, and just throw everything out there you think is not going to work. What do you got to lose? 100%. There are things that we throw out there that are just crazy. Right. <laughs> but you never know. Uh, STV wants to know, what's your main marketing channels? Direct mail is is my primary marketing channel. We do we do some text with Lead Sherpa, mm -hmm. and we do we do a little RVM more for follow up. Um, we do some cold calling, but one hundred percent direct mail. I'm old school guy. Direct mail is my primary lead source. Direct mail seems to be really popular in California. We got Scott, we got you, we mm -hmm. got Todd Toback. Mm -hmm. All you California guys really love direct mail. I don't know. Well, I, I take that back. Raphael in Florida also loves direct mm -hmm. mail. So maybe it's just a coastal thing. I have no idea. Maybe, or maybe it's just we, we've gotten to the point where we can deploy enough of it that it makes sense. Because with direct mail, you got to be aggressive to, to a large degree. What do you mean? Oh, I mean, you can't send out, you know, a thousand postcards every couple of months mm -hmm. and expect to have huge success. You might pick up crumbs here and there, but you really got to be consistent with it. You got to follow up with it, and you got to send out enough for it to make sense. So how, much, how many are you guys sending out? Well, 2018, I sent out 1.2 million postcards, um, which is nuts because I spent $400,000 on paper. Yeah. Um, it's hard to wrap my head around. Um, this year will probably be about 400,000 by the end of the year. I wasn't as aggressive, mm -hmm. but we have a lot of follow-up stuff going on that's really paid off. Gotcha. I love it, though. Yeah. 
Um, if you could quit your, if you could start from scratch again, would you only would you focus on wholesaling or flipping? Well, if I was brand new today, I would I would start with wholesaling. Um, I think eventually I would go into flipping. Look, the market it's, wholesaling is sexy right now, mm-hmm. um, and it might always be sexy. But you know, in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, I, I think flipping may have made more sense. I wasn't in the market at the time; I was too scared to get in, so I don't know. But in a market cycle like that, wholesaling may not make as much sense. So I just want to make sure that you know, when I say to people, you, you got to be prepared to, to to take on whatever the market dictates. Money money's made when different market cycles change and you can adapt to them. And so you got to be in a position to adapt to them. So, you know, if you want to be a wholesaler now, because it makes sense, great, put some pieces in place. You can take action to flip when it makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you're a flipper now, I think you're leaving some money on the table by not capitalizing on some leads you could be wholesaling because the market is right for wholesaling right now. So, um, but if I was starting out, the fastest way to a check is wholesaling. Yep. Completely agree. Uh, Matt wants to know, is there anything that gives you an unfair advantage? Matt who? Matt Smith. <laughs> um, the uh, just you know, I think that uh, my mindset gives me an unfair advantage. Um, there's not much that I'm afraid of anymore, mm-hmm. um, as far as taking action. And you know, we're willing to get in and fail, and make mistakes, and, and learn from them, and readjust. So, um, you know, that that probably just the, I guess my life experience. I've already been through the biggest failure you could possibly be through. I lost everything. I mean, yeah. wh- wh- how you know. What do I got to be afraid of at this point in time? I okay. know what not to do. So, uh, Ed wants to know how should a newbie learn how to repair, estimate repairs? That is a fantastic question because it, it it really is market driven um, mm-hmm. to a large degree. But but you know the whole twenty dollars a foot for cosmetic repair kind of holds true across the entire United States. You know, so I think if you do twenty dollars a foot for cosmetic repair plus windows plus AC plus pool. Um, you're going to be okay if you're wholesaling because you're not closing on that property to get a get a good idea that it's not five thousand dollars to repair the burnt out <laughs> kitchen, right? <clears throat> so a thirty thousand square fifteen thousand square foot house is going to be thirty grand to repair. Um, I think that's a fair, but really getting into you know Home Depot and looking at th- what things cost and 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 you know doing a little bit of math and doing a little homework and educating yourself is really the best way to do it. I mean that's how I did it. I can tell you every floor plan and every home Depot in my market because mm-hmm. when I got back in 2012 I was in every single one of them constantly. You know, I knew what a contractor back pack of baseboard cost. I knew how many feet it, linear feet it was and I knew how many linear feet by average that an average 1500 square foot house is, which is about 700 and change linear feet. So you start figuring that out yeah. uh, you know and you get a really good idea of what things cost it helps you with repair costs it helps you negotiate with contractors so educating yourself on what real numbers are I, it, it's it's time and it's work but again i think that 20 dollars a foot for a good cosmetic repair is a good number to start with yeah um evan and clay were out here and uh one thing they said i thought was a good idea was just call your person that you sold it to and ask them how much did you spend in repairs see that's why i love those guys right and they're smart yeah not only do you learn Mm-hmm. But also your flipper feels like you care. It's true. And and the other thing, too, you know, you can do when you're selling to, to a, a rehabber is to say, basically, you know, I'll, I'll give you this this deal, but I want you to walk me through the project and explain mm-hmm. what you're doing and why so that I can bring you better deals. Yeah. You know, exactly. So, yeah. Um, and Bernard Mack wants to know, um, what is successful step-by-step follow-up process? That might be too much, too intensive a question. What a successful follow-up process looks like? You know, um, 
first of all, it is just shy of getting yourself put in jail for harassment. <laughs> so um, the successful fall. So like I said, we to try to just define the whole thing is probably going to take too long. But yeah. but we have this like, you know, they come in, they don't book an appointment. They go into a, a sequence of, you know, we're going to call them in a week. We're going to call them in, you know, probably every week for a few weeks and every couple of weeks after that. Um, if they get booked on the appointment and they cancel, they go back into a follow up. You know, we're going to call them every week and then every couple of weeks until we get them booked. Um, if the AM didn't put the notes in the system for seven days, it goes back to follow up, you know, 30 days on a contract, it goes back to follow up. And we have different sequences for different scenarios with the property, you know, whether it, we feel it's cold or warm or, or dead, um, but everything, including dead, they call and say, take me off the list. They still go into some kind of follow-up sequence. Yeah. We bought from those. They, you know, six months later, a year later, somebody said, take me off the list, ends up selling to us. So um, we do the um, automated and because we have the Podio system, we do the automated mm-hmm. text, automated email campaigns, but live. You need to be calling live. Your people need to be calling and just building a relationship. You know, the biggest, I would say the biggest advice to a successful follow-up system is real people. But that's, I think, in everything. Answering the phone, mm-hmm. real people. The biggest success for our organization is when we put real people in the seats, answering the phone live, doing live follow-up, and actually having that, that point of contact in our organization. That's good. Uh, King Theos wants to know, are you using local or Filipino callers? We, we I have an office. We use local people. And I'm not a heavy, heavy cold caller. I, we do cold calling to a certain degree, but it's not like that's – we don't pound the pavement of cold calling. I want to be clear on that. Yeah. But I have an office. I'm old school. I work out of my office, and we have about eight people on the phones. Uh, and Spencer wants to know, how do you know when to scale? Well, I think that's different for all of us. Um you need you need to have a vision of where you want to be, and and you need to hire before before you are ready to hire people. You need to hire for where you want to go. You need to do things for where you want to go. So, the um, the answer from I guess from my perspective, it's probably different for all of us. Um, for me, I hired my first hire on my first project when I had no reason to hire him and couldn't pay him anything. I just went, this is the beautiful company I'm going to create. This is what you're going to make working for me. This is the, the life you're going to have, and he went okay. And I couldn't pay him. So, but I knew I needed that component to my organization mm-hmm. at some point. He was my project, he's my project manager today. That's what I hired him for. So, um, so I had that mindset right out of the gate that I wanted to put the pillars in place to hold my organization sound. And, and that's, it's going to be different for all of us. I wish I had like a, you just know, but, um, I, th- I want to say the biggest mistake I think people make is they scale when they're not ready. And they, they scale too fast too soon. A lot of people will, will hire too many people um, and then just try to let them go without any supervision. And that's – I've just seen so many people lose money doing that. Yeah, so. Abdicating versus delegating. Right. Yeah. Uh, Michael Ray points out that you lost a lot of weight. Thank you. Uh, and he wants to know how that's changed you personally or mindset. Um, you know, um, well, personally, I just feel better. Uh, mindset wise, look, I mean, I'm sitting here on podcasts and I'm talking to people about being successful and I'm like a 300 pound dude like that. Those two things do not equal. Right. So it was a realization that if I'm going to have a conversation with people about how to be successful in business, I need to look successful in my life. Right. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, I, I have, I'm a dad of three young kids. I'm in my 40s and they're, you know, teenagers and I have a five year old girl. I want to be around for a while. So um 
and it, and and it's giving me more confidence. I think you know, in, in in a lot of ways, you know, it makes me feel more comfortable in my own skin. So, everything you can do in your life to make a change. I mean, I was broke and I built a business and now I'm making money. Um, I was unhealthy and now I'm getting healthy. I mean, every everything everybody struggles with, I struggled with too. And everybody's watched me over the years make money, get healthy. Um, I was terrified of public speaking. Now I'm on stage. I, I was terrified of the microphone. I have a podcast. I'm sitting here with you. Every fear I've ever had, every obstacle I've ever had, it's documented. You've watched me overcome it. And it's made huge changes in my life, positive changes in my life. And I, I just I want to say right now, Mike, like nobody out there has an excuse not to take action to have the life that they want to have. I completely agree with that. Uh, so right now, what is your monthly overhead in your operations? A lot. A couple hundred grand? My my payroll is, is roughly about $40,000 a month right now. Um, office is $3,000 a month plus insurances and whatnot. So my, my fixed my fixed expenses um, push right around now about 50-ish yeah. a month. So... Um, and then, of course, you got marketing and everything else that goes in that commissions and stuff like that. It turns into a lot of money, yeah. Yeah, the cost of sales. Yeah. Uh, but you, you're happy to pay those. I'm happy to pay the money, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is your biggest struggle right now? Getting out of my own way. Um, I have, I have a couple couple of, of struggles right now. One is um, the same thing. I think we all. I just gave the speech about not being scared and taking action, but I still have mindset struggles, like everybody does. Um, there are things that I feel like, you know, am I worthy of accomplishing that? And then I got to do the gut check and be like, yeah, you are. So that's number one. Um, number two is, you know, um, I was actually sharing this at lunch. You know, I, I hired a phenomenal individual to be COO of my organization. Um, she's doing a fantastic job. Um, you know, she's she's going through our sales department and just rebuilding it to, and you know, she'll be going through my organization and rebuilding it so they don't ever have to be there. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized, you know, that that's like I'm letting go of this thing that I spent the last several of my years years of my life building. I've been out of, like, I don't see the properties. I don't, I don't know where they're at. I've been out of the day-to-day -day operations, but I've still been the one that held it together. Mm -hmm. And I'm finally letting that piece go. And that's probably my biggest challenge right now is, is the realization that I'm letting go of this thing and I'm actually struggling with it. I'm actually struggling with, am I really letting this thing go? Yeah. And that's what I've always wanted, right? So, um, so again, it's getting out of my own way and getting out of my own head. You know, it's funny, um, about two weeks ago, uh, my uh, my right hand person pulled me in the conference room. And she said, "I'm letting you go." <laughs> right? Because right. on, on, on our traditional team, you know, I'm still like involved somewhat, but she basically said, "Like, right. you're clearly focused on the podcast. You're clearly focused on coaching. You're, you're focused on public speaking. Like, I've got this. Right? Go." And it was a little sad, but awesome that I have someone in place. It's like, it's, it's the weirdest balance of mixed feelings, right? Yeah. It's like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like I, they got this, but it's like, I'm not needed anymore. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they don't need me. Yeah. So, uh, what is your superpower? Um, I am really, I'm, I'm a visionary. I think like a lot of us, um, I am really good at seeing 
the big picture of something and then and then making it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I can take something, build the process around, and then hand it off to somebody else really really well. I'm not just the visionary that can't get his hands dirty. So um, my superpower is being able to see something and bring it into reality and then let it go, which is kind of contrary to what I just said. Mm-hmm. The baby is hard to let go, but I've been able to let go different pieces of my organization really well, and um, and that's that's been worked really really well for me. So you're so. kind of like Michelangelo. You can see that it was. It takes like, like I, the, they're like, how do you how do you create these magnificent pieces? Right. It's like, no, it's it's already there. I it's just, already there. Mm-hmm. I just reveal it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to say I'm like somebody as great as Michelangelo, <laughs> but yeah. All right, fine. We'll go with maybe Leonardo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there a book that you've gifted more than any other? Um, How to Win Friends and Influence People is probably, it's the book that changed my life. Um, A lot of people think that that Think and Grow Rich or whatever is where most people got their start. But I was, um, I was, I was in, in, I had a questionable childhood and I was, I was hard to get along with in school. I fought a lot um, with people because of things that were going on at home. And um, I had a principal one day say, you know, you need to read this book. And she gave me the book and the book fundamentally changed my life. Really? And, and yeah, it, it did. And, and, um, and that led me to think grow rich and then think grow rich led me to other books. And then rich dad, poor dad was one that I ended up reading, but that's the one that put me on the path. And honestly, I mean, it's a dated book. I think they have updated versions. I made my kid read it. Um, but if you want to be good at acquisitions, if you want to be good at business, mm-hmm. you know, that book is, should be like your Bible. Yeah. You know, um, it really it really touches on just you know how to interact with people and and win them over and you know and 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 accomplish a lot of great things with your life. Um, you've got this uh, mastermind coming up. I do. What's that about? So we we have um, put the group together called Inner Circle Elite, and it is you know basically we're 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 kind of like a hybrid of your typical mastermind. We're not doing the hot seats you typically see. We're actually rolling up our sleeves and going to work on, on each other's businesses. And um, it's just part of, you know, my wanting to change lives, my wanting to, you know, help people be better, help pe- businesses be better, uh, help people build better businesses. And um, we're, our first meeting is November 4th and 5th. We're actually, f- we, we closed applications. We got enough people in the room for that meeting to be yeah. comfortable for the first meeting. Um, but we'll be doing more in 2020. It's an annual thing. And uh, it, it really, if you want to be part of a mastermind where you're going to roll up your sleeves and actually go to work on your business, not just talk and not just share, but actually go to work, put a plan together, walk out with a 90-day action plan for the next 90 days till the next meeting, this is going to be the group for you. And um, the differentiating factor in this one is is I'm an operator. I'm an operator. I have a business. I know I don't have to ask you what your struggles are. I know mm-hmm. what your struggles are because my business has them too. Yeah. And so that's I just think it's huge and I feel like that you know I'm gonna be able to make a good impact with it and I can't wait to, to do it and I think you have a lot of value to give and then on top of that Ryan Shalaba's in there too Ryan and uh, Mike Cowper Melissa um, Johnson are all part of the founders of the organization and Ryan Ryan's a 26 year old kid who runs a phenomenal business he runs in-house construction teams um, he's smart as hell and uh, you know Mike's a superstar star sales guy uh, Melissa you know her husband Danny Johnson is the flipping junkie mm-hmm. flipping junkie podcast they've been rehabbing for years you know we're all operators we're all people to bring a lot to the table yeah well, I don't know the other two, but I met Ryan uh, a couple months ago. Right. I'm just blown away. Super impressed by mm-hmm. him. So if someone wants to get on the wait list, how do they do that? Go to beinthisroom.com, and uh, there there will be a, a button to get on the wait list. Just put your email in, and we'll let you know 
um, when we open up applications again. So we had such a phenomenal, we did a couple of Facebook lives, a little bit of Facebook advertising, and we mm-hmm. had such a phenomenal response. Um, I, I'm humbled and overwhelmed um, by that. And we, we're trying to build the right community. So we are vetting people. You can't, it's not a pay to play. Mm-hmm. If you're not ready, if you don't have a real business right now, go ahead and get on the wait list and we'll send you out information when we have a, because um, we got some other stuff coming out that you might be interested in. But um, but we're really looking for people that have a, a business in place that have been in business for like a year and uh, that are doing deals that don't, aren't asking the basic, basic questions that are really looking for the fundamental pieces to make their business work better. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then Matt Smith says you crushed it on the stage at Whole Scaling Life. I appreciate that. Uh, so uh, I'm going to let you think about what last thoughts you want to give, and I'm going to make a few quick announcements. So guys, uh, Biloxi Real Estate Roundup Live, that's this Friday. So if you guys want to check it out, go to bit.ly slash RER live. Um, and then I'm finishing the year in New Orleans with Chris Rude on December 6th through 8th. Uh, if you want to go check that out, that's Skillathon, uh, bit.ly slash 2019skill. Uh, and then Max and I have been getting blown up about our workshop uh, where we go over th- everything in our business. And uh, we, are, we are charging 5000 for the event. If you guys want to find out how you can come for free, uh, please visit disruptors.com, D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Um, and then next week we got Matt G. Come, is he in Fresno? He's in Fresno. We Matt. got Matt G. <laughs> coming in from yeah. Fresno. So we got two flippers or two investors from Fresno mm-hmm. back to back. So last thoughts. Um, you know, I, I get out of your own way. I think that's, that's the, what I want to share with people is, is my, my struggle when I lost everything as I was in my own head and in my own fear and I wallowed in my own pity for way too long. And I think a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's important for everybody on here, whether you you have a business and there's something you want to do that you're holding yourself back on or you're trying to get started, get out of your own way. It's worth it. It's going to be hard. You're going to struggle. You're going to fail from time to time. There are going to be days that suck, but when you get to the other side, it's so much worth it. Oh yeah. And, and it's just, just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how can someone get a hold of you? Flip Talk, uh, Don at fliptalk.com. Um, you can reach out to me. I do I do respond sometimes slow. Um, you can find me on Facebook just about everywhere. I have a group. I have a Flip Talk podcast page. I have a personal page. Um, I'm at 5,000, I think, just shy of 5,000 on my friends list personally. So but if you want to follow me, you can follow me on my pages. And, um, and yeah, I mean, um, email me if they want to get a hold of me. Otherwise, uh, just say hi on Facebook. All right, cool. Thank you. All right, buddy. Appreciate it. All right, thank you. Thank you guys for watching.